Okay. Uh, hi, Lauren. Hi, Shane. Hi, Liza. Hi, Shane. I know we are we are Nancy list today, but we will try to fill her shoes. I was gonna say we're like a rudderless fill her voice. ship. Is we that? Are. Uh, I we don't can't. know if we can do there's that. No, there's no filling that voice. No. Um, and I mean that in the best way possible. Okay. Uh, so I'll pitch my questions to all of you. Have you ever, so growing up for like Earth Day or even like Arbor Day or stuff like that, did you ever like go out and plant trees or do like cleanups or uh, like road cleanups? You know what I'm talking about? We picked up litter. Yeah, we there did was a lot like of recycling litter, drive. litter picking up of, yeah. Yeah. But anyways, we're talking about all of this uh, because today, today is Earth Day. Earth Day. It's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. The 50th anniversary of Earth Day. 50 Earth Days. Or 50 Earth Days, yeah. Uh, and so Earth birthday we were talking about this was kind of the original emphasis was on like recycling right and just literally cleaning up the earth i think yeah and like a lot of polluted waterways and just things that had gotten out of control in the 20th century and they're thinking how do we put the brakes on this how do we clean up the kind of mess we have made in our industrialization yeah (laughs) yeah i think there's a big push for environmental regulations around that time right like yeah, the Clean, the clean Air water. Act and Clean Water Act started around there. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So it was kind of like this uh, big schools teaching moment. Oh, yeah, sure. Get everybody outside. Sure. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. I'm Lauren LaPuma. And I'm Liza Lester. Oh, and this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, so on this uh, 50th anniversary, we're actually going to talk about something that might not be, what's well, not on the Earth, it is the Earth. Mm-hmm, it's the mm-hmm. um, the Earthrise photo, which I remember seeing, but never like actually thought about. But maybe Liza, you can explain exactly what this is. Yeah, this this is like this iconic photo from December twenty fourth, nineteen sixty eight. It was taken by the Apollo eight astronauts, so they were the first um, people to go around the moon and orbit it. And they took this photo of the Earth rising over the surface of the moon. So you see that gray surface and the black black background, mm-hmm. and then just that bright blue tiny orb blue marble blue marble coming up over the yeah so Mm -hmm. it's not the same as the there's also the blue marble photograph that came out a few years later um of the earth and close up but i think this really affected people back home you know they were like thinking about going to the moon but then they saw our planet against that blackness yeah it's inspirational i guess or awe-inspiring i think so yeah so you all talked to someone who had something to do with this, correct? That's right. So we talked to a programmer and animator that works at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. His name is Ernie Wright. And he reconstructed what the astronauts on the Apollo 8 capsule saw as the Earth rose over the surface of the moon using uh, more modern data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and, and this iconic photograph. Wait, didn't he also figure out who took the photograph? Yeah, so then oh. while he was figuring this out, it turned out there was this long-standing controversy about which of the three astronauts had actually taken the photo. So we don't, or I guess we might know, but we hadn't known before. Like, who is credited with it for the most part? So Frank Borman was maybe the the most um, assertive, I guess, in stating that he had taken the photo mm-hmm. um, and that his fellow astronaut Bill Anders had been like, no, we have to stick to the schedule because this was this unplanned photo. It was one of the few unscripted oh. things that happened. It was like, I think that kind of lended that feeling of awe was it wasn't part of the plan. They were looking at the surface of the moon and then 
I think the capsule sort of rotated up and they saw the earth and oh, wow. it was like, we got to get this, this shot. Absolutely. To share with people back home, you know? So and, cool. <clears throat> so yeah. So there was this question of who had actually taken the photo. Um, and he solves it. That's exciting. All right, we're going to roll. Oh, my God, look at that picture over there. There's the earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? Hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick, Oh, man, that's great. Where is it? Quick. It's out here. Just grab me a color. A color exterior. There you go. Yeah, I'm looking for one. C-368. Anything, quick. Hey, I've got it right here. Phil, I got it framed. It's very clear right here. You got it? Yep. Take several. Take several of them. Here, give it to me. Hey, man, let me just get the right setting here. Man. Just calm down. Calm down, level. Oh, I got it right. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. 250 at F-11. You sure you got it now? Yeah, we'll get, it'll come up again, I think. Just take another one, so my name is Ernie Wright. Uh, I work at the Scientific Visualization Studio at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. So we're here to talk about Earthrise. Earthrise is this iconic photo from the Apollo 8 mission in 1968, well, right at the end of 1968. And you animated what they were seeing as the Earth rose above the surface of the moon. It's an iconic photograph. It was the first time that human eyes had seen the Earth above the horizon of another world, you know. And it had this tremendous impact on everybody on Earth when it was brought back. Um, we sort of take for granted now that we can see the Earth from space and, and um, the epic camera on the Discovery spacecraft is taking pictures of Earth from a million miles away all the time. Um, but in, you know, in Christmas Eve of 1968, that was not a, that was not a thing that people were used to seeing. This image, Earthrise image, it was not a planned photograph, right? Like the Apollo 8 had this very detailed timeline of everything they were supposed to do, and and this was a surprise. That's right. Um, the right, the Earthrise image was not a thing that was in the flight plan. Um, there's some speculation that it may have been discussed with a couple of people on the ground, but for the most part, this was not anticipated to be an important event. Um, and the the view of the Earth from the moon, I think, took all of the astronauts by surprise. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? You can tell from the audio that they are, they are excited and they have, you know, childlike wonder at the, at this particular view of the Earth. Um, and that's, pretty abnormal for these guys. They were test pilots. They were no nonsense. They had trained for months for this mission. Um, and in some ways, it was a it, it was a very daring mission. And so their lives were kind of on the line. And yet- This was the first time that they had orbited the moon with a spacecraft. It's the first the time- did. Right. It's the first time that anybody had left Earth orbit. It's the first time anyone had ridden the, the full-up uh, Saturn V stack. Um, so it was the first time a lot of these systems were tested at all. Uh, we weren't sure that we could track them with sufficient accuracy once they got that far away. 
Um, the communication systems hadn't been tested at that distance. I mean, we had sent robotic, you know, there were there were Ranger and Surveyor and Lunar Orbiter missions that were robotic prior to that. So we had some idea. But with people, we hadn't tested any of that. So it was a very daring mission, and that had to have been on their minds the whole time. But And yet, you know, they, they do this role, they turn around, and they see the Earth, and they all get very excited. Um, and as it turns out, you know, that image had a huge impact on the public when they came back. Um, a lot of people give it credit for being a major inspiration of Earth Day, which of course is what we're what we're coming up on now. Um, and uh, it was a it became an icon of the environmental movement. Um, and that's somewhat ironic because I think environmentalists of the time were not entirely on board with spending the money to go to the moon. Um, what's the benefit? But as all three of the Apollo 8 astronauts have said in the past, um, we went all the way to the moon and discovered the Earth. Um, and that was really the impact of that image. Bill, I got a phrase that's very clear right here. Got it? Yep. Take your several, take several of them here. They don't even get the right thing. Hey, calm down, Oh, I got a raise. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. I do animation with data that comes from NASA missions, uh, and specifically um, animations that are based entirely on data. So I don't have a lot of artistic latitude. I'm placing the data in some, some sort of artistic um, context. So if it's uh, Earth data, then I will wrap it onto a model of the Earth. Uh, and because I mostly work with a Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, I'm wrapping that data onto the Moon. So tell me about, about how that works. How do, how do you take data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and, and turn it into a picture for us? So uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, LRO, has been in orbit for uh, more than 10 years. And it's basically a mapping and reconnaissance mission. It is measuring the shape of the terrain using lasers. It's taking pictures of the surface with uh, both a wide angle and a narrow angle camera. Um, they can get down to about one meter per pixel, which means we can take pictures of all of the Apollo landing sites and lots of other interesting places. Um, LRO has collected more data from the moon than all the other NASA planetary missions combined. Uh, and it's partly because the moon is so close to us, so we have very high bandwidth. Uh, and it's also because it's been there for so long. Um, so the data that I get is usually um, a two-dimensional array of numbers. Um, this is just a table of numbers, and they wouldn't be particularly meaningful to most people. But uh, my background is in computer science, so I write programs that translate those numbers into pictures and other things that uh, 3D animation software understands. Um, we use you know, off-the-shelf uh, animation and rendering software, um, just like Hollywood uses. That software doesn't know anything about space or astronomy or science data. Um, so we have to sort of translate the data into a form that the software understands. And then um, within that software, I can make a model of the moon. So I'll start with a sphere and uh, wrap the global color uh, maps that we have and the global terrain maps. And the software knows how to turn that into uh, the mountains and valleys on the surface of the moon. 
Um, and then it's just like a movie set. I decide where to put the camera and uh, I calculate where the light goes because it's simulating sunlight. Um, and the software also knows how to calculate shadows, which is really important when you're trying to get the appearance of the moon correct. Um, the moon's very sort of black and white, chiaroscuro, you know, and what you have is the contrast between the day side, the night side, and the shadows. Um, so that's kind of the process. And then um, what makes it different from one animation to the next is the story. Um, so we're always creating these visualizations in service of a story. Uh, most recently, I've been working on uh, some stuff for the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. We got more of a problem. Okay, listen, listen, you guys. We've lost uh, fuel cell one and two pressure. We lost uh, O2 tank two pressure. And temperature. The flight of the Apollo 13 to the moon is in serious jeopardy this morning and is not going to make a moon landing. As the Apollo 13 was some 205,000 miles from Earth, speeding toward its rendezvous with the moon scheduled for tomorrow night, the fuel cells that supply it with electrical power suddenly failed. With this lack of power, the mission could not be completed to the moon, and it is now a question of getting the men home safely. In those visualizations, I calculated Apollo 13's orbit, and I placed the camera in the position where the spacecraft was. And so as they pass around the far side of the moon, I'm able to show you exactly what they were able to see. Um, and that's been incorporated into um, a website called ApolloInRealTime.org. They've uh, put that in there and played it back so that the frames correspond to the times. Um, and so you can kind of hear what they were saying on the ground as those guys were passing around the far side and, and yeah, place all of that in the context of the entire record that we have of Apollo 13. So, so we can have this virtual reality experience of kind of almost being there in the capsule with the with the astronauts. Absolutely. And it's it's an opportunity to experience that in a way that we haven't been able to before. You know, when you're on the far side, the astronauts aren't in radio contact with the Earth. Um, and most of the other Apollo missions, they had a tape recorder that would record the onboard audio when they couldn't talk directly to Houston. But in the case of Apollo 13, they had already turned that off. It was one of the things that they did to conserve power um, because by that time, they were already in trouble. Um, the explosion happened about 21, 22 hours before they reached the far side of the moon. And so they were already taking steps to sort of power down and conserve their power, conserve their, uh, their other consumables. Um, so the only record that we have of what they saw on the far side are some photographs, some still images that they took. Um, and so using the LRO data, we're able to simulate their view and kind of uh, broaden that a little bit and give everybody the experience that they had. And luckily, the surface of the moon doesn't change very fast. So <laughs> I, That's right. Although it changes a little faster than you would think. Um, one of the great things about LRO being at the moon for 10 years is that they have seen several hundred new craters uh, being formed. Um, and the way they do that is they photograph the same spot on the moon multiple times, and then they compare sort of the before and after pictures or the earlier and later pictures. Now, these are not big craters. They're 10, 20 meters wide. Um, but 
it indicates that the surface of the moon is being churned a lot faster than we thought. The impact crater with, uh, at uh, just prior to the subsolar point on the south side and the floor of it, nearly uh, even there is one dark hole. But I couldn't get a quick enough look at it to see if it might be anything volcanic. So you were, you did this same kind of system that you were just talking about of mapping um, this data from the LRO onto onto the moon, but then syncing it kind of with the photographs that the that the astronauts had taken. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was really the first time that I had done it with any of the Apollo missions, and it started with uh, my wife buying me uh, a poster of the Earthrise image for for Christmas, um, and I thought. You know, I was staring at it and I thought, we have the data that we need to simulate this view. Um, I didn't have any sort of grand ideas about how this would turn out, but uh, it seemed like a creative way to sort of exhibit the data that LRO is returning to us. And that's pretty much my job. Um, but as I got further into it, I learned that there was... There were lots of questions about how that photograph was taken and who took it and exactly when it was taken. Um, so it just started out as, you know, one of these opportunities to do something sort of interesting and engaging with the data that LRO is returning. Uh, but as I got further into it um, and found out that there were all these things we didn't know, I realized it was an opportunity to learn more about that photograph. You could actually use the visualization kind of as a as a tool to experiment and figure out, like, answer this question of who took the photo. Exactly. Um, so that meant that I had to calculate the Apollo 8 orbit. And um, that information, you'd think you could just go out on the Internet and find that, but you really couldn't. I had to use uh, documents from, you know, the 60s and early 70s that described the trajectory. And, and with the moon model that I had, I just had to put the the camera in the position of the spacecraft and then see if I could match the mountains on the horizon and the craters in the foreground and the position of the earth and the rotation of the earth. Um, and so that's kind of how that came about. Is Was the capsule, was it turning? Was it spinning? Do you have the, the motion of the spacecraft too as you're trying to to right. simulate this whole system? Well, as I got further into this, I started to attract the attention of several people who are um, have a very personal stake in the history of Apollo. Um, uh, the author, Andy Chaikin, uh, contacted me, and I even heard from uh, one of the Apollo 8 astronauts, Bill Anders. Um, and so as we discussed it more, they encouraged me to make this simulation as realistic as I could, including which way was the capsule pointing. Um, it, it turned out there was uh, an automatic camera that was mounted in window two. Um, it was pointing straight down at the surface of the moon, and it was taking a picture every 20 seconds. And if you look at those pictures at the time of the Earthrise photograph, the pictures started to rotate. And so not only was the capsule pointing sort of nose down, straight down at the moon, it was also turning, and if you go to the if you go back to the transcript or listen to the audio, you can hear uh, the the uh, commander of the mission, Frank Borman, saying, "Okay, we're going to do the roll now." 
Um, knowing the orientation, it explains several things. So the photograph wasn't taken until orbit four. On the first three orbits, the windows were always pointed backwards or somehow away from the Earth. So this was the first time that they'd seen it. And they oh, so argued, this is the first time for the astronauts, too. First time for the astronauts, exactly. Um, they had been in orbit for six hours already and had not seen the Earth. Um, when they finally did this roll maneuver, all of the windows went from backwards to forwards. And that's how the Earth appeared to them. Um, but what's important about that roll is that you can tell which window the Earth showed up in first. And that was the window that Bill Anders was sitting next to. And so he was the one that said, um, and you can hear it on the audio, um, you know, oh my God, look at that. It's the Earth coming up. Wow, isn't that pretty? Oh my God, look at that picture over there. And once you establish who said that, you um, can be fairly certain of who took the picture, and it was Bill. Um, Frank couldn't have seen it because he was sitting on the other side of the spacecraft and actually uh, with the joystick in his hand performing the role. Um, so the visualization made all of that clear, uh, which was very cool. So what was the, the controversy was that both Frank Borman and Bill Anders remembered taking this photo. And Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, who took the photo was not a mission critical fact <laughs> they needed to remember. Um, and so they, you know, they remembered that sequence a little bit differently. Um, it turns out that uh, Frank had taken some pictures of the Earth on the fifth orbit and the seventh orbit. Um, but for a long time, uh, Frank and Bill both claimed to have taken that Earthrise photo. And then, um, you know, I always, I always tell the story that Jim Lovell um, started to claim it, too, because he felt left <laughs> out. Um, like, I want to be part of this controversy. Yeah, I want to be part of it, too. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, Frank, you know, told the story of the taking of that Earthrise photo in his autobiography. Um, but since then, Andy has convinced them that, that Bill took the picture. Um, and I, I got I got the sweetest um, uh, uh, note from Frank. Um, we we sent copies of the visualization that I did to all three of the astronauts, and, and Frank wrote me this beautiful note that, that thanked me for making it. And, um, I, you know, I was really worried about his reaction, but uh, he, he actually took it remarkably well. <laughs> it's hard to admit you're wrong, especially yeah. if you really remember it. You're like, in your mind, this is... Yeah, exactly. But I mean, Frank is a really no-nonsense guy. And I, I think once you point out to him that the facts were a little bit different from what he remembered, that he had no trouble sort of taking that on. It was okay. We love that you solved this with science, essentially, or with math. What with would you math. say? <laughs> yeah, I think I think math. Um, Did the astronaut say that? Yeah, this was what it felt like to be looking through the window. I Jim they're not Lovell, floating in space, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, um, Jim Lovell sent me a sent me an email that said, uh, "Oh, great! I can show this to my grandchildren so they know what I did." Um, I'm sure he was joking. I'm sure his grandchildren know exactly what he did. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, when you make the 
the visualization uh, entirely based on data and on reality, um, you can create something that reminds people who were there that this is how it kind of was. Um, I, I think you need that fidelity in order to um, evoke the memory that they have of that experience. Um, and it's such a privilege that I got to do that. Is the the data from the LRO is so precise that you could basically like reconstruct it almost like a video game or a, a virtual reality experience? Could we could we go to the moon virtually? We totally can. Um, and in fact, one of the one of the important things that LRO is going to be able to do is um, allow us to simulate the lighting conditions. So. Uh, Artemis would like to go to the South Pole. Uh, this is where lots of interesting things are being discovered, including a fair amount of water. In but places. Artemis is the is the future moon exactly. mission. This is that the, we're planning now. right. This is the this is the crewed expedition that we're that we're sort of aiming for uh, getting to the moon in 2024. Um, part of the planning for that is deciding where you can land. Um, the moon is not tilted like the Earth is, so the poles don't receive sunlight in the same way. Um, and so you need a way to model which parts of that terrain are going to be in sunlight and which ones are going to be in shadow. There are actually lots of places near the South Pole that are permanently shadowed. The sun never gets in there. Um, the good thing about that is that those places probably serve as reservoirs for water that has been there for possibly billions of years. Um, and so we can use that water as a resource, but it's also that water is kind of like a data collector. And so before we use it all up for rocket fuel and whatever, um, it'd be nice if we could get there and take ice cores. And um, as you go down deeper into the ice, you're looking at um, uh, events from billions of years in the past that could potentially tell you about solar activity and, uh, you know, lots of other things that the ice has just been sitting there and recording for all of that time. Um, but you don't want to exactly land in a permanently shadowed place because then you've got no power and no light. And you can't see and you can't, you can't do anything. So ideally you would land in a high spot that's close to a permanently shadowed region. Um, and in order to find those places, you, use the very detailed model that we can build from LRO data um, and simulate the, the sunlight and the shadows from that data. Um, and I think the LRO data is going to be that kind of resource for decades to come. Can, can future astronauts use that to practice their potential totally. landings on the moon? Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I mean, it's remarkable to me what the Apollo um, program was able to do with the technology of the 60s. And so when they got into the simulator for the, for the LEM, the lunar module, they had plaster models that they pointed a camera at. And, and as they maneuvered toward the surface, the camera would sort of move up closer to the plaster model. And if something went wrong and they crashed, the camera would hit the model and the model would break and they'd have to make a new one. Um, but, you know, with the technology that we have now, obviously, we can make a very detailed digital experience, um, you know, just a just a real-time sort of VR thing um, that would allow the astronauts to simulate um, non-destructively uh, all of the all of the maneuvers that they have to make when they when they want to land or if they want to um, fly around. I mean, 
one of the issues that Apollo had, uh, particularly the later missions, was that we didn't have very good models of the terrain, and that meant as they're descending, they're a little bit worried about hitting the tops of the mountains. Um, uh, Apollo 17 landed in the Taurus Littrow Valley, and that's surrounded by fairly high mountains. Um, and so they had to take extra precautions and come in at a steep angle because they didn't know where the mountains were. Um, and the computers didn't have the capacity really to model that very in very much detail anyway. Um, so, you know, we now have the ability to do this um, with so much more information and, and so much more certainty about what we're going to be landing in the middle of. The other thing I'll say is um, not for nothing that this image had the effect that it had on people's psychology about the Earth. Um, and it's something that we celebrate uh, to this day on Earth Day, that um, we are on the most important planet. Um, no matter how interesting the other ones are, this is the one that we have to make livable, and it's the one that, that um, deserves a lot of study. And, and so that's why... Um, a fair amount of NASA's effort involves uh, remote sensing of Earth. Um, this is how we find out about uh, global weather, uh, fires, um, landslides, uh, vegetation, uh, CO2, uh, all the things that NASA studies on the Earth. It's, it's how we know these things, and they're incredibly important because we all live here. Okay, so mystery solved, I guess. Science. Science. Science is it all. Who knew that on Earth Day we would be solving a mystery, um, <laughs> a, a positive mystery, not like a murder mystery or anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one was harmed in the solving of, of this mystery. Of right? course not, no. <laughs> okay, well, with that, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks to Liza for bringing us this story and to Ernie for sharing his work with us. This episode was produced by Liza and mixed by Lauren. We would love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Please mm -hmm. rate and review us. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts and at always at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>